Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to episode 130 of Maximize Your Influence. I'm Steve Olson, and I have Kurt Mortensen here with me. Kurt, how's it going today? Hey, it's a great day. Feeling good. Great day to learn how to persuade and influence. When isn't it? It is always a good day to make more money, to have more friends, to negotiate better, to be a better leader. I mean, you can't get better than that. I've mentioned at various times on the show that my wife and I, we have a daughter who's a bit of a handful. In an innocent way. She's a good kid, but she's just really... Uh, that study we talked about on the show, I think, a few months ago about how defiant children tend to be more successful as adults. I don't know if you mm -hmm. recall that. We always laugh. We think of her. You know, that's her. And we were reading this parenting book on the plane back from Mexico and <laughs> just uh, all these techniques and we've been trying them. And some of them she just chews up and spits out. Others actually work pretty well, but... It's your, you were always trying new persuasion techniques, always trying to get better. You can never be too good at it. Such a critical that's, skill. And that's a great point. I mean, sometimes the key is to have more tools. Some tools work with a certain individual, some don't. But the key is to have those tools. If you don't have those tools, you can't be persuasive. Yeah, if you try a persuasion technique and it doesn't work, it doesn't mean that persuasion techniques are a gimmick, right? It just means that either you did it wrong or it just didn't work on that person. It was the wrong tool, so... Always and I'll add one more to that, too, is that either they, maybe they didn't like you or trust you. I mean, that can be part of the element, too. My daughter didn't like me or trust me. That sounds right. <laughs> that sounds right. That's the moment. That's possible. It certainly is possible. See, she loves you. She might not like you at that moment of discipline. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's giddy up here. And I know let's that, make... uh, as we mentioned typically on the show, always follow us on Twitter at InfluenceMax. Like us on Facebook. You can just punch in Maximize Your Influence in the search bar on Facebook. Check out the show at MaximizeYourInfluence.com. That's the old school way to do it. Check out the blog entries and the links to the articles there, as that's where we typically post them for the show. And we are certainly arriving at that moment that Kurt loves, where he gets to cue off the Steve Urkel button for his geeky article moment of the week. All right. Urkel, go. <laughs> I like this article, though. Oh, you do? Yeah, some of them, you know, <laughs> you get out of these journals, and I'm going, okay, that's neat. But uh, this one I, I think is pretty good, and it might actually increase the list of people we offend. Ooh, it is a high offense list. It's from the British Medical Journal. Not too bad this time as far as journals go. Those guys are abrasive, though. The British Medical Journal. Yeah, there's no sugarcoating on this one. And the disclaimer is, as we offend people out here, remember with persuasion and influence, people judge you. We know you're not supposed to judge, but you judge on first encounters. You judge in second encounters, and they're judging about you, how you look, how you dress. Some things we can fix, some things we can't. We just deal with it, and we just need to know what people are judging us on. So the title of this article is, your size predicts how much you earn. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. Now, we were joking before the show, and last week we talked about Donald Trump and his hand size, and so <laughs> I asked Kurt about this, and he essentially told me to get my mind out of the gutter. But, That's you know, right. in all fairness, this was a topic <laughs> last week, so you're going to have to define size because maybe some of our listeners like me have their mind yeah. in the gutter. 
All right, Mr. Gutter. Yeah. This is going to take it a different direction here. So basically, it's bad news for short men and overweight women is that you have reduced chances in life when it comes to income, education, and job prospects. Mm. Mm. So they did some research, and basically the way they looked at it, men who were three inches shorter than those of the same intellect and background earned about $2,100, or maybe it's 200 pounds less per year, as did women who were 14 pounds heavier than their peers. Women who were almost 28 pounds heavier had an annual household income of almost 4300 less than their counterparts. Wow. So they've done their research here. And, you know, they looked at different things. Is it self-esteem? Is it bias? Is it discrimination? Is it all of the above? And there's been a lot of studies on this as far as height. We've mentioned before on this show that, again, this is not fair, but most CEOs, male CEOs are over six foot. Most of them have a sales and marketing background, so they've learned persuasion. And the height, there's something about height and power and persuasion. Again, some things we can fix, some things we can't. But it was interesting on uh, the research they showed. But here's the good news to those who might not have the height. Found that shorter guys, those shorter than 5'7", were less likely to get divorced. 32% lower. So there's some pros and cons, I guess, when we look at height and weight and a few different things. But height does affect lifetime earnings, and weight does too. If you're over 20% of your benchmark of your weight, it could affect how people judge you and perceive you. You know, I'm not saying that it's right. I'm not saying that it's fair. I'm just saying it's reality. It's how it happens. And it's good to know as persuaders different things that we have, different things we can fix, different things we can't fix to really enhance our ability to persuade and influence. So Kurt has basically irrevocably said that if you're tall, you're going to be rich and divorced. And if you're short, you're just going to be married. And that's that. <laughs> I guess in a quick nutshell, you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty crazy. You wonder, what is it about being shorter that makes you stay married. And then as far as the height and making more money, there's got to be so many different variables at play there. And then on the women's side and the weight, you know, height wasn't a factor there, but the weight was. I don't know if it'd be possible, but it'd be interesting to kind of remove some of these variables from the equation to see how much these are all playing off of each other. That's that's nuts. It is. There are a lot of variables involved. There's the two variables to where how people perceive you and then how you perceive yourself. If it's affecting your self-esteem and your demeanor and the way you interact with other people because you're self-conscious about weight or height or a few other things, there's two factors there that really could come to play in this type of a study. Wow. Okay, so uh, one way to get uh, become a better persuader is to grow? Yeah, so heighten. You get some uh, men wear heels, <laughs> women Puff up your hair a little bit. Does that count? I, I <laughs> well, for the women, it's a it's the opposite thing, right? It's a, oh, that's true. That's true. Maybe women have the advantage here because I, you know, you could offend some people and say, "Well, just lose some weight," but you know, people say, "Well, I can't." Well, I it, you're going to be able to lose weight easier than you're going to be able to add five inches. This is true. That this we know true. again. Some things we can fix, some things we can't. But it's good to be aware of how people are perceiving you and the perception. Again. I'll be the first to admit, it's not fair. We're not talking about fair, we're talking about reality. Yeah, and th this, of course, was coming from those judgmental Brits. Oh, there they're we just go. just the worst, right? Who just added more to our offense lift. I think this might be one of our highly offensive shows. Yeah, it's very highly offensive. <laughs> I actually have, have a couple friends that are British, but, you know, we're just defending them for fun now. Now we're just... Oh, there we go. They're, they're just do. terrible, so if you're British and you, you don't like that, then you can just let us know. Although here in America, we kind of... We we think that the British accent is is a little bit cool. My wife was watching ridiculous 
Downton Abbey last night, the series finale. And I always I think it's funny because I'll catch these clips of it and they say these they're having this proper dinner, right? They're all at the table and they'll say these vile insults to each other and they say it so calmly and with that sophisticated accent that you know, you don't get mad, you know, America, it's, you know, throw a beer bottle and yell and scream and swear. And these people are just so sophisticated about how they insult each other. So, Well, maybe that's something we can learn here. Be better in our insults here on the show. Maybe so. Yeah, so if you're mad at us, if you're a British listener and you're mad at us, you know, send us a recording and insult us and use your accent and we won't be as offended. Maybe they should do a study on that. Play it on the show. Play it on the show. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, a nice proper tongue lashing on the show <laughs> maybe that's a whole show the proper way to insult <laughs> right right and i did hear a study once too about when it comes to english accents because you've got quite a few countries that actually speak english as their first language well, u.s and canada and great britain and australia and uh there's there's a few others at singapore a big mix and the funny thing was do you want to guess if they they took interviews with all these people and said which accent do you like the most in english you want to take a guess? Like the most or trust the most? Like I the guess. most. Everybody, you take all these people, American, British, Australian, Singapore, uh, uh, South Australia? Africa. I'm Australian? No, it was American. Uh, yeah. That's also would depend who they asked. <laughs> I they're think asking so. Australians are asking Americans or asking Singaporeans. That might have a big factor. The whole idea was they asked everybody as a mixed bag and American apparently came out ahead. And I think these people have not heard a New Jersey accent before. I mean, That's yeah. true. It's probably because of all the TV shows they've been watching that to get them used to that accent. Yeah, I had a hard time believing it. And, and while we're on ridiculous tangents, you know, it actually is possible to grow a little bit once you've once you're full grown. I, this astronaut, I can't remember his name, that came back from being in the International Space Station. I think it was for a year. He was up there studying monkeys or whatever they do, <laughs> and he came back and he was he actually has an identical twin. And he's two inches taller than his twin now after a year in space. You want to be two inches tall a year in space, but it doesn't last, though, does it? Don't they shrink after a few That's weeks? That's the catch, yeah. Is that uh, because of the zero gravity, you're, the disks between your vertebrae are actually able to expand and uh, you grow. But uh, that's why you know, on, on Earth for so long, you kind of compress. All the gravity is just beating down on you. So, Well, there's the solution right there. If you have a big job interview, go to space for a year. You're two inches taller. Come right and do the interview. Get the job, and then you shrink. We're telling you what to do on the show here. (laughs) If you just don't have the chops to apply it, it's not our problem. Yes. We don't want to spend a year in the space station. We can't can't help you. We can't help you. (laughs) We're giving you the instructions. It's up to you to follow them. So let's let's move on here after a series of uh, ridiculous tangents, maybe probably top five for the show. We're down to Abbey, going into space, British accents. It's pretty good. So we've talked on the show in the past about the Persuasion IQ test that Kurt has at PersuasionIQ.com. You can see how good of a persuader you actually are. Today, we had a, an interesting question that we wanted to ask because this always creates a dialogue about the topic. And we want to hear your feedback. Email us at MaximizeYourInfluence at Gmail or tweet us on this at Influence Max. Kurt, you have a question from the Persuasion IQ setup, from the Persuasion IQ test. What is it? Let's answer it and let's talk it through. All right, you got it. So here it is. When you know price is the biggest issue, I mean, you've talked to your prospect, you know that's a huge issue for them. The first thing you should do is A, talk about the guarantee. B, show the most expensive product first. C, Show the least expensive item first. D, list additional features. E, list additional benefits. What do you think? 
Mm. I think you need to show the most expensive item first. That's a correct. It is B. You always want to show the most expensive item first. Even if you know they're not going to purchase this, even if you know it's way out of their budget, it adjusts their perception of the value. Because as a persuader, you have to decide when it comes to price. And again, when you hear it's too expensive, can't afford it, 67% of the time it's a lie. But if you hear that, you've blown it as a persuader. You have not built the value. You have to realize when you're talking about your product, your service, your idea, whatever it is, are they going to compare it to a used car or are they going to compare it to a Rolls Royce? That is your job as a persuader. So I have a question about that. Mm -hmm. There might not be an answer. But if you're a persuader and you've got a stack of leads in front of you, however it is you're contacting them, and you know you're going to these people, you're making proposals to them. I've I've seen sometimes what happens is you use this technique, you hit them with the most expensive product first because, number one, like you said, contrast, and number two, they might say yes, right? That mm-hmm. might be what's right for them, so why not start there? But sometimes I've noticed that persuaders end up paving the way for their competitors. When they're the first persuader in and they talk price, they're the one that gives the sticker shock and incurs all the wrath of the prospect. And meanwhile, the prospect doesn't do a deal with you, but then they sit there and they stew and they research and they realize, oh, you know what? Price wasn't so bad after all. Competitor comes in, the prospect is already prepped because somebody went before him and gave him the sticker shock and everything, and now they're good. Do you ever see this happening? Is there anything that we can do about it? I ask because I know it's happened to me. No, it happens quite a bit to where... They just want the price. They want the price. You give them the price sticker shot. They hang up and they shop someplace else because they already told you no. And they're not going to come crawling back to you and say, uh, yes. <laughs> so your role as a persuader is to make sure you do the interview in the right way, do that exam in the right way, where you find out exactly what they're looking for, what their budget is, what their expectations are. So when you do come to the investment or the price or whatever you want to call it, It has that shock factor, but it's not unrealistic. It's not in their insult zone to where it's way out of the park. But we get that challenge, or how much is it, how much is it, how much is it? we got to delay that as much as possible. Now, some people you can't delay. They just want to know. They're doing the research. So if they say, how much is it, you might want to say, well, we've got a couple different options. Can I ask you a few more questions to see which one's the best fit for you? To try to get a little more information, to try to delay that as much as possible. Because if you don't, and you just come out with price, and you haven't built the value, you're going to get that knee-jerk reaction and they're going to say, no, shop someplace else, and someone else could get the business for the exact same price, but they've already told you no. What do you think about giving them a range? Because you're, like you said, you're trying to delay giving the number as long as you can. That's effective, certainly. But if you give them a range when they're just totally insisting, and you're not going to, you're going to really jeopardize the trust, right? If you don't give some kind of a number and say, well, it could be anywhere from X to X. That depends on a few things, and then convert it to questions to take control. What do you think of that? I think it's great. If they keep pushing for price, give them a range. Well, it could be $1,000 to $20,000, and so you've got some room to work. Now, and so you've answered their question, kind of, and you say, well, let me ask you a few more questions to see where you fit within that range. Or you could pull up Brian Tracy, one of my favorite things that he's taught us as well. If it's not a perfect fix, it's not going to cost you anything. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's not going to cost you a penny. If it's not going to solve your challenge, it's not going to solve your problem, it's not a perfect fit, It won't cost you a dime. That's right. That's right. Okay, cool. So what else? I mean, when we go into these and price is going to be the biggest issue, we're trying to start from the most expensive price point. And any other advice for the listeners when they're dealing with this kind of a product? First of all, have the courage to go as high as you can. 
You see this with insurance sales. Well, how much is it going to cost? Well, it's $1,000. What? Well, wait a minute. You're a non-smoker. Well, wait a minute. Your kids are on the honor roll. Well, wait a minute. But you've established the value at 1000 And study after study shows the higher you can start, the more value you're going to bring to it as far as getting the price that you want. For example, we've talked about door-in-the-face technique before where someone came up to somebody at to do a survey. Can I do a 15-minute survey? And only 25% said yes. But now we're going to start high. We're going to build the value. They said, can I do a two-hour survey? Well, no, 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 I have time. Can I at least do a 15-minute survey? And it doubled the compliance from 25% to 50%. So sometimes we're scared to go as high as we can. I mean, even in retail, if you look at a dress that's on sale, and it's been on sale multiple times, they don't cover up the existing original price. It's there. It was $200. Oh, now it's $150. Now it's $175. I'm getting a $200 dress for $75. It puts things in perspective and that is your goal. And we see that time and time again in marketing. In fact, let me give you some examples that we've seen here that are really important to understand when you talk about adjusting perceptions here. For example, bonuses. We see this on the internet all the time. Three bonuses worth $25 have more value than one bonus worth $75. And logically, we say, well, that's the same amount, but three bonuses has more value than one bonus, even though they're the same value when you add them all together. Or here's one that's really interesting. If you ship product, having all your product arrive in one box has less value than receiving three separate shipments. Mm. Now, you have to do the cost-benefit of that, but I'm just talking about perception of value. At grocery stores, we have the club cards where everything's more expensive and it puts right in your receipt. You've saved $20. That makes people more satisfied than having cheap prices all the way through. Cars. We know that it's a large retail price, but we feel better when we get a rebate. But we see, hey, I got a $20,000 car, but I got a $3,000 rebate, even though that was built into the price. For example, here's one thing that's really interesting with consumer behavior right now, and infomercials especially, and a lot of internet offers. You see this all the time. It's easier to see monthly payments on a large purchase than the whole price tag up front. In fact, some offers won't even let you pay the whole thing. It's three monthly payments or four monthly payments. People think in payments now instead of the full price. Well, I can do that every month, and that is a huge shift. And here's one interesting one, gas. When they started taking credit cards for gas, there was a $0.10 surcharge for using your credit card. Mm -hmm. Well, not doing that, Mm -hmm. and it failed miserably. And so, of course, I think everyone knows they've changed it. No, 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 there's a $0.10 discount for using cash. (laughs) That puts it into perspective and that's what your goal is so if someone says it's too expensive can't afford it can't use it you're blowing it as a persuader you have not built the value you have not used a lot of contrast because when you come to the price to the investment they should say oh that's it that's incredible value whether they can afford it or not that's another issue they should see in their brain that is an incredible value right right I like that about breaking up the bonuses. It makes such a big difference. It it, it does increase the the perceived value a lot. When I because I, I order from Amazon all the time, and sometimes shipments come in pieces, and you're more excited, and you think, "Oh, this is cool." Probably because of the packaging, Kurt. We associate some value to packaging. Therefore, if there is more of it, there's more value subconsciously. I think it's like Christmas all over. We're opening presents and keep coming. <laughs> Yeah. Even though you paid the same price for all of them, you feel that you've received more just by getting an extra shipment. And, you know, that's something that Apple is very effective at, right? You order a computer online from Apple versus Dell or something. And I've done this. Uh, The Dell one shows up in a cardboard, brown cardboard box. You know, you tell it's mass produced and 
you get a little bit of literature in there. When the apple shows up and looks like some kind of a space box, right? I find myself saving the boxes. Throw the box away. <laughs> Can't throw them away. And that's part of contrast. We've seen that when software. Now, most software is downloaded now, but when you spent $1,000 for software and you get a little CD, sometimes you have a little remorse. What? I spent $1,000 for this. And so when you look at software packaging, it used to be these big, huge boxes. And you're pulling this out and doing this, but really, it's just the CD. They did that to adjust the perception of value because you're spending so much money for this little thing. There's a company I do some consulting for and for their clients. And when their clients pay the company for this service, the company gives them a bunch of stuff. And me teaching a workshop to them is one of the things they get. But one of the pieces is a software. You know it. It's called a PropStream. And it's for evaluating real estate and evaluating the feasibility of an investment and things like that. And it comes in this big, giant box. And you open it. <laughs> I think they've gone the other direction with this personally. You open it and you slide this plastic tray out that you can quickly tell this is all the mass of the box. It's this empty plastic tray. And right in the middle of it is this little thumb drive. (laughs) (laughs) It's just ridiculous. You're going, you've got to do some other things there to enhance that because now they know. Are you kidding me? This big box? It's totally possible to go the other direction on this. Oh, and that hurts me with what I do in my business because selling... CDs and DVDs and educational material. It used to be when you're talking to a group of people, you had a 20-pound box of 100 CDs and all these DVDs and these big, thick manuals. And it was a huge box, but now all that fits, like you say, on a thumb drive. So it's the same information. It's actually people prefer it more because it can go right on their computer. But that little thumb drive, unless you do it the right way, does not have the same perceived value as a 20-pound box of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, have you ever seen this online, people selling software, some kind of an educational program, like a PDF, a book or something, and you're on their squeeze page, a squeeze page, and and that's kind of jargony. Listeners, what that means is the page where they've got a bunch of persuasive text, and then you've got to sign up at the bottom. It's a sales page, a landing page, some people might call it that. And they'll show pictures, these boxes of this book that you're getting or this software that actually doesn't even exist because when you get it, it's a download. That's how you're going to receive it. A physical version of it does not exist. They have a graphic artist create that box and put it on the squeeze page online because subconsciously it says to you, value, I'm getting this thing. When in reality, you click a link in your email and listen to stuff over the web. Pretty crazy. Yeah, we see that all over the place. and It helps you visualize it and it does add the perceived value. People need that. Yeah, all kinds of things that people will do to for perceived value. My dad was at a convention in Phoenix this past weekend, and it was for a bunch of home-based businesses. And he was, uh, I don't know, if this maybe this is a blunder. I shouldn't be using this, but I can't remember the name of the Phoenix newspaper. It's a Phoenix Sun or something like that. And, or no, the Arizona Republic. That's what it is. Phoenix Suns a basketball team. <laughs> yeah, come on. Get that right. Come on. So this guy, my, my dad kept calling me because he was observing this guy try to hustle newspapers in this convention hall. And you know having a booth at a trade show or something like that, that's a tough racket. Oh, yeah. Right? You're trying to grab everybody's attention that's going by. It's tough. Now, imagine you're doing it with something that nobody wants. <laughs> a physical <laughs> newspaper. 
And they were trying to give out hockey tickets and all kinds of things to get people there. And as soon as they found out, ah, physical newspaper, I don't, I don't want that anymore. There just was no value because he was coming from this position of weakness. So I, I've said on the show a lot of times people want to schedule an appointment. Right? I'm not just hanging around waiting like a puppy dog to talk to prospects. There's the perception of value and contrast of your time and what you're actually doing. And if you're always available and you've got nothing better to do, I think that subconsciously that's a strike against you. You Clearly you don't want to cross the line to you're not convenient and you're not ready and able to help the prospect. But you've got to have that division of, you know, I'm not just sitting around. But call your doctor's office. Hey, can I come over, doc? Are you kidding me? He's busy. He's professional. He's got appointments, right? So you've got to be available yet scarce at the same time. I don't have a perfect answer on that one, though. That's kind of a oxymoron, I guess. Well, that's what you use contrast for. It could be adjusting the perception of time, value, budget, money, effort. And that's the important thing is that the human brain, no matter what you ask someone to do to help with the committee, to give you some time to purchase someone, the knee-jerk reaction is too expensive, too much time, too much effort, can't do it. And you got to put things in perspective so they don't have that knee-jerk reaction. Exactly. That's good stuff. Well, let's move on. Why don't we cue up the blunder? All right, Homer, go! Don't, don't, don't! Here's Homer, and I'm going to do this one. We've been having some pretty tacky blunders over the last few weeks. Kurt had the the guy at the boat show that just completely blew it. Mm-hmm. We had Rosetta Stone, which we weren't sure if it was a blunder or a ninja. Trump's hand size, that thing was a total blunder. And uh, today, we're going to talk about a little experience I had down south in Mexico. I, th- I think this is, when we talk about these, these timeshare, these commoditized sales approaches, they fail to realize the mindset that the customer is coming from. And once again, I'll, I'll give them a little bit of latitude here. They got to sell their stuff. They got to do it some way. And maybe there's not a completely ideal way to do it. But uh, my wife and I landed in Cabo San Lucas. And if you've ever been there or anywhere down in uh, Latin America, Caribbean, you come down an escalator from the airport and you see that big football sized room, which is immigration. Delightful experience. And a lot of times that room is full <laughs> with people winding around and around to get their rubber stamp. You know, I've been offending other countries today. I don't know that Mexico's super concerned about people coming in, right? <laughs> You're here at a tourist town. You want to spend money, but you got to go through immigration. We do that. It was a horrible process. And then you go through the airport. The guys pretending like they're your taxi drivers, and they're really just timeshare guys, right? And we drive 40 minutes south to Cabo, and then there's a line at our hotel. Got to wait in the line at the hotel. Just sitting there. We've been flying all day in immigration. We get, we check in. And he says, okay, so to go to the pool, you obviously have to have a towel. And to get your pool towel cards, you've got to go talk to one of our hostesses over here. There's a line to talk to the hostesses. We're, we're lined out, right? Enough lines for one day. No mas. So we go over, we wait in the line, and we sit down. And what does the hostess do? Hustles us to book a timeshare presentation. Hustles us to book excursions. And we have to listen to all of this in order to get what we believe should be a part of the deal, <laughs> right? We paid in advance to stay at the resort, and now we got to get shaken down for a presentation to get something that we already paid for. Not cool. Not cool. We were not happy with it. Definitely a blunder. Uh, fortunately, I speak Spanish, and for some reason, I can be a pretty big jerk in Spanish. I'm not a very good jerk in English. But, but in <laughs> Spanish, I can really let it fly. 
And I did, and we got our pool towel cards in, in what I think was a fraction of the time. But uh, it, it was a blunder. Not cool when they just uh, when they steer you through something like that. So uh, shame on the Playa Grande Resort. Didn't like that. Liked everything else about it, but not that. Yeah, the old bait and switch, and that's basically managing expectations. Your expectations, hey, I'm here, I've been waiting in line. You didn't want another line. You just wanted to get in, get your swim trunks on, get some sun, get some food. And uh, they had uh, yet another line. And the timeshare is a big violator in doing that, managing expectations. Oh, it's just 10 minutes or quick thing or free gift and a lot of different things they do to just get you in the door. And then 10 hours later, you're like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. If your prospects, if your leads are all coming to you grumpy, then there's something happening along in the marketing or something going on with their expectations. And, you know, if you're a sales guy, that's it's not your fault with the marketing people or the owner of the business is doing. That stinks. you got to make the best that you can out of it. But, uh, you know, if you're one of the higher-ups that controls that and your salespeople, oh, our leads are all grumpy, that should tell you something. Yeah. The key factor here is you got to really watch those expectations and handle it the right way. Because if you keep setting people line after line, or especially in a hotel, especially in timeshare, especially in resorts, they cross the line way too many times to where you have to do this to get this, and you have to do this to get this, and it can get old real fast. It can, and it does. All right. Well, there we go, Kurt. That's episode 130 in the books. Done deal, 130. Woo, we're getting there. 130. I mean, that's like a round number, kind of. Well, it is a round number. Yeah. 130 <laughs> episodes. Everybody everybody should just be really excited about, about 130. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to hang it up then. And next <laughs> week, right. 131, nothing really special about that number. So we'll have to crank out some really great content for the show. That will do. Yeah. That's kind of me alluding to the fact that we don't for other shows, which that's not true. We have great shows. You know, each show is getting better and better, right? Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> Just because it's episode 131, an insignificant number, don't hate on it. It's going to be a great show. And we look forward to having you on it, uh, Kurt, next week. Best show ever. You got it. Best show ever. <laughs> Promises aren't taken lightly. We'll see you next week for the best show ever. Thanks, everyone. All right. Take care and see you next week. <laughs>